It's Thursday, June the 10th. From The Recount and iHeartRadio, this is the News Items Podcast, bringing you analysis and interviews based on my newsletter, News Items. Today we have an interview with Stephen G. Smith, a journalist and news editor who's had a long and distinguished career. I should also note that Stephen is a good friend. His resume is too long to read in its entirety, so instead I'll just note some of the highlights. He was a senior editor at Time Magazine, an executive editor at Newsweek, the editor of the Washington Examiner, and the editor-in-chief of the National Journal, among others. In the interview, we talked about what's happened to journalism. We also talk about Trump derangement syndrome, the rise of the woke, and what it was like to work in the very old days of print journalism. So without further delay, here's my interview with Stephen G. Smith. Stephen G. Smith, thank you for joining us. Welcome to the News Items Podcast. Well, thank you for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be with you. I want to start at the beginning. Uh, We've talked about this, but I think our listeners are interested in how people get started. And I want to ask you, how did you get started in the, in the journalism business? Well, when I graduated from Penn, I gave up the idea of law school and wanted to work for a newspaper. Didn't know how to type. So I went looking for a job at a small newspaper in, in New England. It was turned down by nine. Finally got uh, a job at the uh, paper called the Daily Hampshire Gazette in Northampton, Massachusetts. And, uh, Spent a delightful 18 or 20 months there learning the craft. I remember you saying that uh, you actually saw the hot metal of the type go in. Can you tell our listeners about that, just what that was like in those days? Yeah, well, it's, it, it makes me feel really old because we were still pouring molten lead into letter forms to make plates for the press, and it had a very distinctive smell. And then the linotype operators would read the type upside down to look for typos, which naturally led to about a half dozen typos on every front page. <laughs> uh, and the press was actually maybe 30 yards, 40 yards behind the newsroom. So when the presses started rolling, you really got a feeling of excitement and, and a feeling that you had accomplished something tactile that you could put your hand on when that first paper came off. Wow. What was it like to be an editor of Time Magazine and the editor of Newspeak Magazine? Who was really stood out to you as sort of the the cream of the crop at Time, or is that well? If you think of my Nation section, when I was there, I had Evan Thomas, Maureen Dowd, Kurt Anderson, Alessandra Stanley, a Walter Isaacson, right. And they were among the junior people to two guys who were in their mid-50s, both of whom who had written more than 100 cover stories. And it was an extraordinarily talented and lively and collegial group. And you lived in New York at the time? Yes, I did. Is it really true that there would be, uh, where the magazine had to close, what, Saturday? And the story goes that there were fantastic sort of buffet dinners for the editors and whatever whatever it took to get the thing done. Is that true or not? True? Oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> I, the, my first week there, down from the Boston Globe, which was, you know, insofar as newspapers went, a pretty luxurious place. 
we had dinners on Thursday and Friday nights served in a room. And there was a gentleman with a white coat and black bow tie. And he had three large roast beefs, one well done, one medium and one rare. And I'm standing in line waiting for this. And uh, I'm trying to hold it all together, right? Because I'm just a newspaper guy. <laughs> and I get all the way, I've made my order. And then he looks at me and he says, red wine or white wine? And at that <laughs> point, I lost it. I just couldn't. I thought I'd gone to heaven. Although I had given up drinking by then, so it was useless. But still, there was the symbolism that counted. So that was probably, what would that be the pinnacle of the influence of what you might call big print, um, certainly in the magazine business? Or did it carry on after you left? I would say that it, the period I worked at Time and the period I worked at Newsweek from 86 to 91 I would mark as the pinnacle of, of influence, certainly, of the big press. I mean, the, the jockeying that would go on among political candidates to get on the cover of Time was astonishing. Right, right. The cover of Time meant so much. In Manhattan, nobody read Time. You know, everybody read the New York Times. But if I went to Cleveland or Detroit, I was greeted like visiting royalty. I mean, it was wow. such a big deal. And uh, the most touching moment of influence came when I was at Newsweek, I guess about 1990, and The Simpsons had been on television for a few months, and my six-year-old son was absolutely glued to the television set, and he would say, Daddy, you know, you ought to do a cover on The Simpsons, and I'm thinking, you know, what is this guy? What is this problem? And so I finally worked up the courage. We did uh, a cover with Bart hanging off of the logo with the cover line, uh, Why America Loves the Simpsons. And it made me a hero to my son, which right. was uh, right. satisfaction enough. He has this three by four foot poster still hanging in his apartment. But even beyond that, I was at a book festival with my wife a few years ago, and I ran into the co-founder of the Simpsons. And I happened to mention that we had done this that I had suggested this cover and we had done it. He said, Oh my God, thank you so much. We didn't know what was going to happen to the show. When that cover appeared, we knew we were a success. Wow. And the Simpsons is still running strong. Yeah. It's a mainstay of the Fox uh, library, I guess you would call yeah, it. Yeah. Well, it's done better than Newsweek print, I must say. <laughs> anyway, so that's the height. And we get to the arrival of the internet and the model starts to crumble. How did you see that as you, you were obviously on the editorial side, but you could see it coming? Let's just take, because you worked at the Boston Globe, and so did I, how did you see it hitting the globe? Well, more generally, I, I confess to being slow generationally on what impact the internet would have, because so many of us in print, I mean, I, you know, you got to remember, print had been a cash cow for a century. Right. The whole advertising model with circulation revenue adding to that, it, it was a great deal. It, was, it really worked. And so at first, I and many of us thought that the internet was a threat. We didn't want to give away the content for free. Right. You know, we thought that would detract from the print edition and undercut our display advertising. And so it was bad news. And right around the same time, Craigslist came out in 1995, and Craigslist was really nothing but online 
classified ads, help wanteds. Right. And newspapers depended on classifieds for 40% of their revenue. Mm-hmm. Some newspapers, 70% of their revenue. So everybody was sort of sitting on their thumbs while Craigslist ate the lunch of newspapers. Newspapers should have just put them up for free, just to blunt Craigslist. Right. But actually, you know, we were just paralyzed. I mean, at the same time, uh, we were still making content free. And, you know, instead of putting up paywalls, so what are consumers going to do? They're going to go to free ads on the web from Craigslist and free content in the newspapers and newspaper print circulation nosedived. I remember on the reading David Halberstam's book about what's called the powers that be. I may not get this quite right, but there was a Sunday edition of the LA Times that had a separate section and it had a hundred pages of help wanted advertising. Hundred page special section. I mean, when you think back to that and the cash that generated, it's just astonishing. Well, there's there's always that wonderful, must be apocryphal story of the newsboy at the LA Times tossing a Sunday edition on the lawn and killing a small dog. (laughs) We're going to take a break right here to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back to discuss all things journalism with Stephen G. Smith. One thing that the, the internet brought, obviously, was speed, right? If you were writing for the Boston Globe or the New York Times in the pre-internet days, you filed when you filed, and then it appeared in the newspaper eight or ten hours later. You and I talked about how speed changed journalism, and I wondered if you would talk a little bit more about that for our listeners. Yeah, that's a good point, John. I mean, you know, the message of the medium is speed now. I'm not going to claim that the old way was perfect to any great degree, but at least it contained a strong element of deliberation. In other words, you come in, if you're a reporter, a beat reporter, you have an idea, you'd pitch it to your editor, he'd pitch it to the news meeting. Or if you were a general assignment reporter, you'd wait for somebody to give the assignment to you. And then throughout the day, as you would make phone calls and go out and talk to people, uh, the story would keep changing shape. And you get one side of the story and another side, and then you get nuances that you hadn't thought of. And all of this, you'd go back and forth with your editor and you'd kind of settle, not officially on, okay, this is how the story should be written, but you'd sort of get the strong strains that should be in the story. The editor then would sandpaper it. The copy desk would catch you on your grammatical errors and spelling errors and some dumb factual mistakes. And all this process went from, say, 9.30 in the morning to a 7.30 deadline that evening. So at the end of the day, you felt pretty confident about, you know, having the story basically fair and right. Now these poor guys, they have to write almost faster than they think. I mean, the news just comes in so fast. They type it out. They push the button. I can't speak for this personally, but judging by the way it comes out a lot of times, it's very lightly edited, if edited at all. And then it's updated and then updated again or that the reporter moves on to another story, and you're left with these kinds of incomplete sort of news bulletins. So there's, there's a big difference. Now, which is not to say that the papers don't step back and do long takeouts and uh, considered stories of the old style. But a lot of the daily stuff is very, very, it depends on velocity, because being first means a lot. Nowhere, I think, or no story quite played into speed 
the way the Trump story did, which began really, what, in 2015 with him coming down the escalator and then his election and then his administration, obviously, and then the re-election campaign of 2020. And that led to what many people called Trump derangement syndrome. I want you to talk a little bit about that, how you view Trump derangement syndrome and how did it get started? I never quite figured out when Trump became utterly toxic. Well, I, I think it's a very real thing. We use the term jokingly, but in fact, much of the public and certainly the big generally left-leaning press became unhinged by Trump. And you can understand it a little bit from the reporter standpoint. Uh, reporters were used to presidents who acted presidential. And suddenly you have this guy who is bombastic and uh, speaks whatever is on his mind, and he's throwing out these tweets every morning, which fed the speed obsession of reporters. So reporters could sit back watching their monitor and see what Trump had said <laughs> had come up with next. They would you know, laugh in the newsroom, and then they would put their little spin on the Trump tweets, push the button, and you know, it was practically a day's work done in no time. And look, audiences wanted that. You know, we've always, journalists have always written to their audience. Right. Uh, when I was at Time, the wonderful managing editor, Ray Cave, said, our purpose is to be a mirror of the country. He was a liberal. And Time was slightly, slightly right of center. And he just put his politics aside, which in effect meant that we were writing to our readers. I mean, it was morning in America at time when Reagan was president, okay? Right. And in this case, the highly educated news consumers of the New York Times and the Washington Post were greatly unsettled by Trump. Confirmation bias really kicked in. And so stories that played to that unsettled feeling were very popular with them. And of course, the pandemic turbocharged all of that because people were nervous anyway. So I wish journalists had kept their cool a little bit on Trump, but I understand completely why they were writing to that audience. And it was, it was fantastic for the, you know, the digital editions of the New York Times went from 5 million to 7.5 million in a year. Now, granted, some of that was for cooking and game apps, but most of it was due to people who wanted to read about Donald Trump's craziness and also about the pandemic. The Washington Post went up 50% too. So look, if they'd been writing stuff that was praising Trump, believe me, their digital numbers would have gone down. Yeah. One of the most controversial projects at the New York Times uh, was the 1619 project, which a lot of us thought was wrong on its face. Can you discuss how did that come to be and, and why? I just don't understand how they got so far out in front of themselves and then decided to stick with it. Well, boy, I wish I knew. Look, I think it probably sprung from good intentions. But as you say, it got way out in front of itself. The whole premise was so nonsensical that it seemed to me that I, I just couldn't believe that the paper that Abe Rosenthal had once edited was printing this stuff, right. which is not to say that black Americans don't have legitimate grievances. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, the man who wrote that all men are created equal, had 600 slaves and who he didn't free and in fact thought there would be a race war if they lived together. 
James Madison had more than 100 slaves. They even brought some to the White House when he was president, 1808 to 18, whatever. Uh, George Washington also had slaves that he, in his will, said would be freed at the death of his wife. They were actually freed a year earlier. So they could have, you know, they could have gone to that. Or they could have gone, if they wanted to set a, a marker for grievance, they could have gone to the Constitutional Convention in 1787 when, you know, I think 25 of 55 of the delegates had slaves. And the Great Compromise, which allowed for a bicameral legislature with proportional representation in one house and equal representation of the states in the other, required them to count slaves as three-fifths of a person and not to ban slave trading for another 20 years. Now, that was practical politics. These guys knew it was wrong. You know, they really right. did. But their, their economies depended on it. The whole Southern planter class was wedded to it. But to say that the sudden arrival of 20 black slaves in Virginia in 1619 was our true founding was nonsensical. And it was so nonsensical, in fact, that the times, you know, after so many historians had raised hell about it, quietly, some would say secretly, some would say surreptitiously, went back into its digital version and removed that bit, uh, which right. I thought, in my old-fashioned, stiff-necked way, was probably the worst thing they did in the whole thing, uh, is to right. erase history. Cancel culture has come to the New York Times. But there are two incidents of note. One is the defenestration of Jim Bennett for publishing an opinion piece by Tom Cotton on the opinion page of the New York Times. Uh, the other is, I think his name is Don McNeil, yeah. who got in trouble for something he said years ago on a, one of those newspaper tours sort of alternate revenue source. And I can't remember what he said, but it involved uh, a racial epithet. It's important to note that he wasn't using the racial epithet. He was quoting about it. Anyway, he gets the toss. From my point of view, the quote of the decade regarding the deterioration of journalism was from the executive editor of the New York Times, Dean Becquet, who said, Don, you've lost the newsroom. Can you tell us a little bit about Jim Bennett and uh, Don McNeil getting the toss? Well, I think you pretty well summed up the McNeil thing. I mean, as, as these absurd efforts to generate revenue go, having a senior Times reporter going with a high school group to Peru to learn <laughs> about heaven knows what really takes the cake. But anyway, they were talking about some video in which uh, a young woman, I believe, had used a racial slur. And he was, he was talking to this other young woman about high school student, mind you, a Phillips Andover student, I might add. <laughs> and, you know, he was trying to figure out whether the video had used the slur to attack somebody or whether it just recounting something. And he, in discussing it, he used the term, he used the slur. Right. And then the kids came back and said, you know, uh, that he was using racist language and all of this, the times and first defended him then they backed away then he was forced out and he wrote these you know like 60 pages defending himself and pretty convincingly i thought but don you've lost the newsroom quote is a very very good one 
you can draw a straight line from that to the Tom Cotton situation. Because the Tom Cotton situation came after the Times published an op-ed by Cotton suggesting that because of the unrest associated after the George Floyd killing, that the government send in the troops. Right. And don't get me wrong, I disagree with that idea completely. I mean, for those of us who are around when National Guardsmen opened fire on students at Kent State, the idea of a bunch of only half-trained National Guardsmen with loaded guns is not a really good idea in a highly charged situation. Right. But still, Tom Cotton is one of the sort of half-dozen of the great mentioner list of possible presidential candidates. Uh, I've seen him in person and seen him speak, and I don't think he's got the charisma to make it, but still, he's a significant figure. People who are interested in politics, I think, would be interested in reading Tom Cotton's views on this and probably deciding that's not a very good idea. But anyway, the Times staff went crazy, and uh, I shouldn't say crazy, but they were enraged. And 800 of them signed a petition protesting this. And at first, the Times kind of temporized and, you know, didn't exactly defend Bennett. Then Bennett said, well, actually, they had solicited the editorial, although he hadn't read it beforehand. And before you know it, the Times, anybody interested can go to the website. You'll see a 320-word editor's note atop of column of what 750 words explaining right. their decision to publish it and in space of three or four days suddenly james bennett has been defenestrated now i know james bennett i'm not a friend of his but we both worked at atlantic media at the same time and occasionally i work the floor above him and i go down and we chat he's like you know the most open-minded liberal I guess liberal doesn't mean anything anymore, but he's really a liberal, absent the quotes around progressive, you think of him as a progressive thinking guy. For him to get bounced was astonishing to me. You know, when Dean said, okay, Don, you've lost the newsroom. Well, he'd already been through this before. He had lost the newsroom. The inmates had taken over the asylum. And James Bennett, the op-ed editor of the New York Times, had been fired. Right. And he was, I mean, Bennett was someone who at least was in the running to be the executive editor, or at least under consideration, right? After back at left. Yeah. No, he, he's, a, he's a serious guy. He's a really smart guy. He's actually the brother of Michael Bennett, the senator from Colorado. Right. He's in that top rung. I don't know. I think the Times had had a couple of brushes with him before where they weren't terribly happy with things that had happened on the op-ed page. But, you know, op-ed although now they call it guest essays, uh, op-ed pieces are supposed to be provocative and are supposed to be, you know, run a little counter to what the Times editorials are printing. So if the Times got problems with pieces that are provocative, then I guess it says a lot about journalism today. It was funny. My experience from the 2020 campaign, having written a column for The Globe, I called up my editor, who's still there, Marjorie Pritchard, and said, I'd like to do a column on the Biden campaign going south, making it possible for Trump to win. And so I wrote this column. Whether it was persuasive or not, you know, who knows? But it created this enormous reaction. Walter Robinson of the Insight team 
texted me and said, you have no idea what kind of ruckus you've, <laughs> you've stirred up here. And what was interesting about it was it wasn't directed at me. It was directed at Marge, which was completely different when I wrote for the Globe. You know, I would put something that, in there that the readers didn't like. They would come after me. They wouldn't go after Marge. But in this, in the 2020 context, it was Marge who took all the bullets. And what Walter was telling me was not that I had, you know, created a problem or ruckus and that I should expect to be pilloried in Boston, but that I had, I had inadvertently <laughs> made Marge's life miserable, at least for a while. I mean, it seems to me Bennett was doing exactly what he should do and print controversial stuff, print stuff that people, you know, would react strongly to, and, and he got fired. I mean, it just, I still can't quite get over it. Well, you know, it's never underestimate the power of peer pressure. And I think right. journalists, as the Cotton incident showed, uh, how many of those 800 people were greatly offended by his editorial op-ed? Who knows? But right. because everybody was signing, everybody signed. All right. Well, thank you so much for doing this, and uh, have a great weekend. Uh, wish me well on the on the member guests. And I know when you're up here that we are going to uh, figure out which golf courses we're going to play. That'll be fun. Okay, John. Well, thanks for having me, and good luck at Sleepy Hollow this weekend. Knock them dead. Sleepy Hollow. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the News Items Podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bien-Aimé, and Ali Rogers. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer today was Simran Singh. I'll be back on Monday with my co-host, Rebecca Darst. We'll see you then.